Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 2. Uh, as you're turning there, let me just say to some of you who may be from our Anderson campus uh, visiting uh, due to the marathon and kind of the change of service times, we are grateful to have you here with us. Uh, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the Southwood campus pastor here and filling in for Blake Jennings, our teaching pastor, but it is a joy to be with you here this morning. Uh, as you guys are looking for Luke chapter 2 and that familiar Christmas story, uh, I'll tell you guys, in, in conversations I've been having with many of you the last few weeks, I've found that many of you have a certain set of very special Christmas traditions that for many of you, you take actually quite seriously, uh, that you actually are quite convicted about. And sometimes it's lighthearted and it's funny. Uh, for example, what's your favorite Christmas movie this season of times? Or maybe it's more of what color Christmas lights do you prefer on your tree? Uh, in our home, we have a little bit of a civil war that is broken out. On one side of things is the adults, my, my wife and I, who prefer the traditional and we think classy white Christmas lights. On the other side are our kids. Uh, we have a seven-year-old and we have a four-and-a-half-year-old who prefer the, in their minds, more festive and more fun multicolored lights. And this guy made a major mistake at the beginning of the Christmas season because we went out and I bought a brand new artificial tree for our living room and made the classic rookie mistake of buying a tree that had multiple colored options. And so what happens in our home every single day is a volleyball match. Uh, we wake up first, turn it on to white lights. Our kids wake up and it's on to colored lights. And then it's white and then colored and white and colored. It's like a civil war all day long until they go to bed and we win and we back it back to white. <laughs> Some of you, though, some of your traditions you're quite more serious about, and they are so serious that at times they can actually pit husband and wife against one another, and you know what yours are. In ours, our very first Christmas as a married couple, we got into what we like to call a discussion. You had those as well, you know, uh, as to when we would open Christmas presents. I came from a home that took the superior approach of opening on Christmas evening, and then staying up all night and playing with newfound toys and then sleeping in Christmas morning on the high of what was just experienced. My wife came from apparently the more holy and spiritual tradition of opening on Christmas morning, which as you may tell, we opened, I negotiated and got one gift that we opened on Christmas Eve and then the rest are Christmas morning. Not really a huge success in my negotiation skills, but that was actually quite successful compared to the other prized tradition in our home and that's the tradition of the Christmas card. How many of you send out Christmas cards to your friends and family? Or like I like to ask, how many of you endure the horrific photo shoot that involves family and kids? All the husbands are like, yes, I know what you're talking about. And the wives are like, what are you talking about? Well, we do the Christmas card thing, and I've realized in the course of our marriage that I have a greater chance into breaking into the World Command headquarters of a third world country and causing a coup d'etat than I do toppling the prized tradition of the Christmas card. It's going nowhere for all time in our family. Uh, but then some of you guys may really enjoy Christmas Eve and the classic and traditional candlelight service that you may have grown up going to. Uh, and so for some of you, that is really prized, that is really uh, precious to you. Uh, from a facilities angle, I will tell you as a pastor, it's torture in terms of cleaning up wax off of carpet. Uh, but from our family, there actually are some scars of a Christmas Eve candlelight service that went bad some years ago. Uh, my, wife's parent, my wife grew up in a traditional uh, uh, Baptist church where they had a candlelight service every single Christmas Eve. It wasn't like these little battery-powered ones you could click on, but it was like a full candle with wax and light and flames. And one fateful Christmas Eve, all of a sudden, in the midst of Holy Night or Oh Silent Night or one of those songs that was precious and quiet and still and peaceful, and my father-in-law's arm began to droop, dripping not just wax down onto the carpet, but drooped onto the pew in front of him where he lit a fur coat on fire of an elderly woman. 
took a little bit of time to realize that said fur coat was on fire. Uh, but by the time they noticed and got it out, it wasn't such a holy or a silent night at all in that Christmas Eve candlelight service. There are a few things that I can imagine being more out of place than a fur coat on fire in a Christmas Eve candlelight service singing Oh Holy Night. It was scarring to us, and so when we think of candlelight services, even to this day, there's something in us that just kind of moves and shakes and trembles at that idea. Six years later, that same woman whose fur coat was on fire would so happen to become our wedding coordinator for our wedding at my wife's church, and so we did all we could to keep her separate from my father-in-law until the very wedding day itself, hoping that she wouldn't have a bad impulse towards us, all right? But few things could be more out of place than a fur coat on fire that Christmas Eve service. And what I want to do this morning is we open to a very familiar passage in Luke 2. I want to submit to you that there's a casted character in the Luke 2 story that in my mind is so, so out of place. But through the years of our great familiarity with the Luke 2 story, our great familiarity with nativity scenes that we set up every Christmas... That casted character that's in that nativity scene seems so familiar, so normal, and so in place to us. But if we can kind of stop for a second and go back to the original audience and their understanding, the inclusion of the shepherds on that first Christmas would have been shocking. I want to submit to you this morning as we look at Luke chapter 2, that the inclusions of the shepherds at that first Christmas and the nativity scene that we unpack every single year couldn't be more out of place if we really understood what was happening. So that's where we're going to go this morning in Luke chapter 2, looking at the shepherds and asking this simple question, why shepherds? Or expand it out a little bit more, why did God include shepherds that first Christmas? I'm going to submit to you that they're very out of place, and so their inclusion teaches us something very significant about what was happening that first Christmas and the nature of God, and the values of God, and love of God. That's what we're going to see this morning. That's where we're going to go. To unpack that, we're going to kind of track along with three key activities that shepherds have in Luke 2. And what we're going to see as the story opens is their first activity is that they are hearers in Luke chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. The first thing they do is they hear. Notice what they hear. Verse 2, chapter 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The story here in Luke 2, the angels coming to the shepherds is incredibly familiar to so many of us, and yet I want to argue that it's out of place for a lot of reasons. The interesting thing about Luke's gospel is this is the third angelic announcement through the gospel of Luke just alone. The first angelic announcement comes to Zacharias and Elizabeth as the angel announces the arrival, impending arrival of John the Baptist. The second angelic announcement that comes is right after that when Gabriel, the angel, shows up to Mary to announce the coming birth of the baby Jesus. But this is the third angelic announcement in Luke's gospel. And it's the most peculiar and it's the most interesting to me. Why? Because it's the first angelic announcement to a non-family member. The angel isn't showing up to a mom and dad. The angel isn't showing up to a closely connected family member. This is the first public moment that an angel shows up to a non-family member announcing the birth of this baby Jesus. Of all the people that could have received that announcement, of all the people that God could have chosen to go public with that birth announcement, why the shepherds? 
Why the shepherds in Luke's gospel? Why do we get such emphasis upon the shepherds here as Luke unpacks the story to us in Luke chapter 2? There's a lot that's unique about the shepherds. Uh, for many of us, we think about the Magi and their inclusion in this storyline, and it's not so surprising as they bring gifts. They were powerful, they were elite, they were connected, but not the shepherds. The shepherds are the anti-Magi in a sense. And the shepherds' inclusion is really, really significant for a lot of reasons as uh, Luke unpacks the story here. First of all, first non-family member. Second of all, it's really interesting as it unpacks, we don't even get the name of the angel because the emphasis here in Luke's story toward the shepherds is the recipient of the announcement and not the angel's name per se. The emphasis is supposed to draw upon the shepherds as a surprising inclusion. Even more so, as the story unpacks, it's not just that the angel's announcing good news for all people, as it says in verse 10, but again, then notice in verse 11 who the news is for even specifically. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Verse 12, there will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This angelic announcement isn't just to the mass public, but it is to the shepherds specifically. It was for them specifically as well. Even more so, notice what happens in the following verses. Notice even more what the shepherds get a preview of. Verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. How many characters and biblical stories from Genesis to Revelation do we have of men and women getting a preview of the heavenly curtain pulled back and angels worshiping and proclaiming? It's very, very few. So here are the shepherds, the first non-family member getting a message, an angelic announcement in Luke's gospel. They're one of the very, very few biblical characters from Genesis to Revelation that gets a preview of the angels declaring worship. How much more dignified of a place could the shepherds have in the Christmas story than this? And yet, if we really have a grasp of who these shepherds are, they're incredibly out of place. If you think about the shepherds, the question becomes, who are the shepherds exactly? What's their identity? Commentators give us two possibilities as to who the shepherds are. Some will argue that they were a unique group of shepherds that were raising sheep and preparing them for sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem just two miles down the road. That these were a special elite group of shepherds preparing not just normal sheep for life, but actually sheep for temple sacrifice. While that's possible and really unique and interesting, especially off of a prophecy in Micah chapter 4 verse 8 that speaks of a place in which uh, this kind of thing would happen, Uh, Even more so and more likely it is that there was just a common understanding of shepherds as those that were part of the marginalized outcasts of society. That they were low, they were humble, frankly they were stinky. They were ceremoniously and religiously unclean because of the work with sheep. That in many ways the the shepherds were not those that had social standing, had a voice in society, they were not connected in society. Uh, That one of the things I've loved about 10 years of doing college ministry in this church is there's a moment in time that a lot of college guys come to me because they're ready to propose to a girl and they say to me, do you know a guy? (laughs) And one of the things I love to do in that point in time is say, yeah, yeah, I do know a guy. I love that you think that I know someone and I love that I actually do know someone and I can connect you with someone. And that moment of I can saying I have a guy is a moment that no one would have said of a shepherd something that I would have said of a ring guy here in town, but it's not something anyone in that day and time would have said of a shepherd. That I know a guy who can get you out of a fix. Here's my shepherd boyfriend, right? No, no one does that. Shepherds were disconnected. They were marginalized. They were outcasts. They were disregarded and dismissed. 
One of my favorite books is Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point. And in it, he'll talk about phenomenons, messages, or products that are kind of incrementally growing. And then all of a sudden, they just kind of go viral and they take off. And he highlights three groups of people that allow that kind of thing to happen all the time. One of them is he talks about a group of people known as mavens. They're kind of like knowledge data banks. And they just know everything. This is your classic friend who can tell you everything about the Apple product that's coming out next. They're just kind of junkies in terms of knowledge. Uh, But there's another group of people, the the connected ones. They're connectors. They have a friend in every arena possible in a city or in life. They just know everybody somehow. And then there are people that are salespeople. They can convince even the unpersuaded to be persuaded about a message or a product. That when you get those three groups of people working, mavens, connectors, and salespeople, all of a sudden you can have a message or you can have a product that goes viral and that explodes and reaches a tipping point. The irony to me is we think about the gospel message and the Christmas story here. As the angel shows up to the shepherds, I think that they're none of those three. <laughs> they're not mavens, they're not connected, and they're definitely not salespeople. This is the least likely person you could have chosen if you wanted to get a message out. Because <laughs> they wouldn't help you very much in building a network. They wouldn't help you very much in persuading people. They weren't respected, they weren't valued, they had no voice in society. So why does God choose the shepherds here? If we have a sense of who they are, then the question becomes, why did God choose them? What are we to learn from that choice? And I think the choice and the lesson is simple. That as God includes the shepherds in that first Christmas season, the reason why shepherds are a part of our nativity sets is there to remind us a simple lesson. That God values the low and the marginalized. That those groups and those segments of our society that we often dismiss, overlook, and don't provide esteem and dignity to, God values them. Those that seem to have no voice, those that seem to have no face, no no representation, God values them and always moves towards them. And it's really significant. It's really significant. That God values, that God loves, that God places dignity on all kinds of people. That's the gospel message. That's the message of Christmas. That's the good news, that that Savior, that baby has come for all people. And yet, isn't that the question that's being asked so much in our society today? Are all people dignified and are all people valued? Even some of the presentations and some of the conversations going on on our campus this past Tuesday night and the events that unfolded were asking that question. Do all people, irrespective of race, irrespective of socioeconomic status, have value? Irrespective of what those presentations said on Tuesday night, the Christmas story says they do. Every single group, irrespective of race, irrespective of socioeconomic status, has dignity and value in the sight of God. The baby Jesus was for all. And the inclusion of the shepherds at that Christmas scene makes that point all the more stark. That God didn't dismiss it. God put an angelic announcement in the hands of those that were lowly and marginalized in their society's eyes. Nothing could scream the value of the marginalized more. And not only that he puts an angelic announcement in their hands, but they get a preview of the angels worshiping at large. It wasn't for the religious elite. It was for the shepherds. And the reality for our society is that not every person feels like they have the same dignity and the same voice and the same value. So the question is, what does the church do? How does the church respond when we see that God responds this way to shepherds? What's our modern day shepherd or what do we do as a church? 
One of the things that uh, someone in our church has begun to do that I love, I want to highlight for you, is uh, Sarah Moffat, uh, the wife of one of our elders, Steve Moffat, has started up in this fall uh, two different nights of a special ne- a night, a, month, a parents' night out for families of special needs kids. Looking at a group within our community going, they seem to not have the same voice, the same dignity, and wanting to move towards them to show value, care, and love, and support to those families as well. Another thing that our church is doing that I want to highlight for you guys is an event that we have coming up this week that we call our Christmas Co-op. And what I love about that is that it's a change in the way that we move towards the marginalized. Uh, Specifically, uh, the Christmas Co-op event is a way to show value and love toward the marginalized in our society. Some of the families uh, that come out of Head Start, some of the families that come out of our Youth Impact Ministry and wanting to move towards them, not just in love and compassion, but to empower them and to come alongside of them. And so a lot of these families will come in and they will have an opportunity to step into our foyer and to shop and to purchase gifts for their kids with their own money. And before they shop, they actually have the opportunity to work within the co-op to actually put it on so they have a vested and ownership stake in this very thing that they're a part of. It's one of my favorite things that we do as a church. So a lot of these gifts up here uh, in front of our trees are not like we're doing some fun giveaway right after the service. I knew another church on Christmas Eve who gave puppies away on Christmas Eve. That'll draw people in. That's unique. Um, But that's not what we're doing this morning, all right? Uh, Part of the reason we have these gifts up here is to highlight the Christmas co-op event that's coming up and that we have an opportunity to be a part of as we move towards some of these families uh, to extend dignity, to extend compassion, but even more so to not just do something for them, but to do something with them and alongside of them that empowers them. It's really interesting, I think, as we think about generosity, that uh, there's a real shift in the way that we see it today. Uh, a change in the way that we value and we love the marginalized, that there's a change in our generosity approach. Specifically, I want to highlight a couple of questions for you. Uh, first is this. Does your general approach to ge- generosity typically enhance others' dignity or does it enhance your pity? That there's a way to move in generosity that either can enhance the dignity of those that you're moving towards or that can enhance your pity for those that you're moving towards. Or let me put it a different way. Does your approach to generosity seem to be for others or does it seem to be with others? Is it something that you're doing for a group of people that you have no relationship with or is it something that you're doing with a group of people that you come alongside of them and do it with them? Because uh, the approach in generosity matters entirely. That when we do something for others, it has a tendency to highlight our pity. But when we do something with others and come alongside of others, it highlights their dignity and it has a greater significance and opportunity to build relationship. Let me illustrate it for you. Because there's a giant shift that's occurred in our home in terms of athletics. Again, I mentioned I have a seven-year-old and I have a four-and-a-half-year-old. And so in the last few years when we played basketball, uh, what it involved was me lifting our kids up to the goal and they would dunk it over and over and over again. And I didn't need to work on my triceps that week, right? Because it was just this, over and over. I would do for them what they could not do for themselves. And their enjoyment of basketball, frankly, was pretty minimal. But all of a sudden this year, we've had a real shift in that because now we're in organized team sport practices in which they're learning the skills of basketball. And it couldn't be more different because I'm no longer lifting them up and having them shoot, but they're learning to shoot for themselves. They're learning to dribble. And the hilarity of it all for a group of first and second grade girls practice is this, that our head coach is Mike Pageant. If you know Mike, one of our deacons here at Southwood, a really large dude. And imagine this large dude teaching first and second grade girls how to box out and rebound. So 
his frame can literally cover the entire wingspan of our entire eight girls of team. Okay. I mean, he's just huge. And seeing him teach them how to box out is hilarious as is the fact that I'm kind of still trying to figure out my place on the team. Uh, Mike's the head coach. He's got two college girls that are assistant coaches. And I think I haven't checked out the org chart exactly, but I think I'm an assistant to the assistant coaches, but I'm, but I'm cool with that. I'm fine. All right. I think, I just don't know if I'm going to get a coach's shirt or not, Uh, but it's totally changed the way that our kids are experiencing basketball. No longer are we doing basketball for them, but now we're teaching them skills so that they can learn how to do basketball themselves. And all of a sudden, as we do it with them and not for them, the, the experience of basketball has forever changed. Their motivation to engage in basketball has forever changed and their sense of dignity in basketball has changed. It's a huge shift. And sometimes I think that kind of shift is necessary and needed even in our generosity as we think about our city, as we think about our community. A a great book by a guy named Robert Lupton speaking of generosity of churches. This is what he says, and I think it's powerful and it's challenging. He says this, that in over 40 years working with the urban poor in inner city Atlanta and around the globe, I've learned that it takes more than high ideals to bring about substantive change in populations of need. Most people fault the government for failed social programs, and yet frequently we embrace similar forms of disempowering charity. Our free food and clothing distribution encourages ever-growing handout lines, diminishing the dignity of the poor while increasing their dependency. We converge on inner-city neighborhoods to plant flowers, pick up trash, bruising the pride of residents who have the capacity and the responsibility to beautify their own environment. We fly off on mission trips, to poverty-stricken villages, hearts full of pity, suitcases bulging with giveaway goods, giving to those in need what they could be uh, gaining from their own initiative may be the kindest way to destroy people. That's why even in Christmas, in some of the outreaches we do, this Christmas co-op, we've completely changed the approach we have. We're not just showing up in neighborhoods and dropping stuff off, but we're wanting to build relationships, not now doing something for a group of people, but coming alongside, moving into their life, and doing it with them. I love what our Christmas co-op event is. I love the opportunity it is for us as a church to build bridges and relationships with a group uh, in this community that's marginalized and has a way to not just love them, but hopefully empower them. And so what can you do? How can you be a part of this event? Uh, First, I'd say what all of us can do is we still are in need of toys. So you see a lot of toys up here, but we're going to have a lot more families coming in this Wednesday and this Thursday to be a part of this event. And so we'd love for you in the upcoming days, just bring some more toys up. We would love for you to participate that way by bringing toys up that they'll have an opportunity to purchase with their own money and to put under the tree for their own kids. Second opportunity is we still could use some volunteers uh, from wrappers to cashiers to childcare. We have some needs as well that we don't want to do the entirety of the event, but we want to serve alongside of some families that we'll be serving before they're shopping. And so we would love for you to help be a part of that. Uh, We'll have a table out in the foyer. You can talk to some of our staff and figure out, hey, how can you help volunteer and be a part of it on Wednesday and Thursday? You can also email Mandy O'Donnell and she'll help you find the Google Doc uh, that can kind of help sign up for roles as well. And then thirdly, and lastly, I'd say this. Uh, even if all the serving roles are filled, I would love to invite you guys to come up and be a part of it from a purely relational angle. Come and welcome people. Come and hear stories. Come and move into these lives and begin to build some bridges that don't just stop that day, but they could continue relationally uh, for the rest of the year. Come welcome. Come be a part. Come listen. Come engage. Be a huge way for you to be a part of that. We'd love to have you be a part of it and come up this Wednesday and Thursday for it. Christmas co-op, great opportunity for our church as we're trying to move towards a marginalized group and community. So we think about the shepherds. They not just hear, though. 
Uh, and they're not just out of place in my mind as those that hear, but I think their secondary, their second response is also a bit out of place. The next thing they do is they come and see. Look at verse 15. Notice their immediate response. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that had happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16. So they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. This might be the first Christmas, Christmas hurry that any of us have ever experienced. They immediately go. They're in a hurry to go which provides the next classic moment that we ask every single Christmas Sunday as we lead up to Christmas, which is this one. And not that it's overdone, but I'm going to ask it again. Does your hurry this Christmas lead to devotion or does it lead to distraction? The first Christmas hurry that we see is of the shepherds rushing to the manger scene to see and to worship baby Jesus. And it's a little bit unfair for some of you college students who are in the middle of finals for me to hit you with that one, right? You're, kind of, you're like in survival mode right now, and I get that. But whether it's for you students, whether it's for some of those families or for some of you young adults, that uh, let me challenge you in the midst of, the, again, the hurry, the busyness, the activity, to take some moments and to meditate and to slow down and to be grateful for the birth of the Savior Jesus and to think about it and to process on it. We hit you with that every single week, but I wanted to hit you with it again. Does your hurry lead to devotion right now or is it leading to distraction? Where are you in that? The last thing I want you to see this morning, though, that I think seems the most out of place of the shepherds, I think the fact that it seems out of place probably says something more about me and you than it does about the shepherds, because the last thing they do here fascinates me. It fascinates me more than the fact that they get to hear. It fascinates me more than they get to come and see. The last thing they do here blows me away. Notice what happens right after they come and see the baby Jesus. Pick it up in verse 16. Or verse 17, when they had seen this baby Jesus, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. The last thing they do here, they hear, they come and see, and the last thing they do is they share. The angels go to them and they say, hey, here's an amazing announcement of a baby Jesus to be born. And they immediately in a hurry pick up and they go and they go see the baby. And immediately after the baby, they turn around and they start sharing this amazing news. And they're not just sharing it to those that are at the manger scene as if those people don't already know what's happening, right? They're right there. The fact that they go and they share, they're sharing with people who are not at the manger scene. And the response is saying everyone's amazed. It's interesting to me as we think about the shepherd's response, I'm surprised by the fact that they share right after seeing and hearing. Why am I surprised by that? Honestly, because my hearing and my seeing doesn't typically immediately lead to my sharing. And I suspect it might be that way for you. That you're hearing the Christmas story, you're knowing the Christmas story, you're coming, you're seeing of the Christmas story, you're setting up your own nativity scenes, doesn't always instantly lead to you turning around and sharing that story, does it? Because for so many of us, we've disconnected seeing and hearing from sharing. One of the things I love about the shepherd's story and the shepherd's experience here, there's a few myths that I think they blow away. The first is they have no training class between verses 15 and 16 and 17, right? There's no like how to share my faith training class, right? They just saw, they heard, and they shared what they saw and they heard. It was that simple. There wasn't a, a huge worry about what are all the questions they would have to be able to answer. They just shared what they had seen and they heard. It was that simple. 
And their sharing wasn't an expectation of something they would do once they got mature in their faith. It was something they did from the very beginning of their faith. And yet for some reason, for so many of us, we disconnect our hearing, our seeing from our sharing. What if this Christmas season, as time-honored as your traditions were of Christmas trees and Christmas cards and certain movies, what if in the midst of that a litany of traditions that you have, you built in another one, which was evangelism? I know that's shocking, right? But what if one of the time-honored traditions that you had in terms of what you did at Christmas season was looking for opportunities to share your faith of a story that you've heard and that you've seen and it would seem natural that you would share. If any of you have been around our family for any amount of time, you will know because of our kids' frequency to talk about it, there's something that they've heard about and there's something that they've seen and they've come and seen that they cannot stop sharing about, and it's cats right now, okay? They've, they've heard about cats, they've seen cats, they've come and played with cats, and now they're sharing to a certain jolly man who might bring toys about cats, Okay? That's all they are talking about for Christmas is cats, cat toys, cat, whatever. There's two problems that this mom and dad have. One, I've never had a cat. I'm not a cat person. Okay. Number two, uh, my boy has a certain pronunciation problem. So when he talks about kitties, he doesn't make the C sound. He kind of makes it and substitutes with the T sound, which (laughs) I'll let you take that where it will. All right. So we have multiple problems with this whole deal. Okay. Now that I've totally lost you. All right. But what I love about kids is this, man, when they come and they see and they hear about something, there's no disconnect in their sharing. It's immediate and it overflows naturally. And yet for so many of us that have been walking with the Lord for a while, we have for some reason created a disconnect from the hearing and the seeing to the sharing as if we need more training, as if we need whatever, a class or more maturity and more time. No, not at all. The shepherds turn around immediately and they share. And what I want to do this morning as we wrap is I simply want to challenge you over the next 10, 14 days as you approach Christmas and as you wrap out and move toward the new year and you have some downtime, I want to challenge you to use these two weeks evangelistically. That you would build in as a time-honored tradition of the Christmas season, building in, praying for opportunities to move towards relationships with the lost And hopefully the opportunity to share your faith and the meaning behind Christmas and why we're so joyful about it. Let me give you a few ideas, a few things that either we've done ourselves or we've heard about. Uh, Last few years, my wife has been amazing and she's done a Candyland Christmas party for kids. So she has our kids' friends come over, some neighborhood kids, and we do tons of games, a lot of candy, which I'm all for. Uh, And then it always ends up into the candy cane talking about the meaning of Christmas and what Jesus has done. Other opportunities for you is to invite an international student over. Uh, the last time I looked, we still had a, even a few names of international students from the furniture giveaway back in August that no one has yet reached out to and invited into their home. What if this morning as you guys walked out, you grabbed one of those last cards and invited that student over for Christmas to have a meal and eventually you get to talk about Christmas and traditions and countries and whatnot? How great would that be? Thirdly, I want to challenge you, maybe invite a neighbor or a coworker over. It doesn't mean that you have to share the gospel, but I want to challenge you in the midst of the season to lean in towards, relationally speaking, some of the lost. Maybe that's in your neighborhood. Maybe that's a coworker, And just simply invite them over for dinner. <laughs> and to not just spend all of your relational time with the church, but to be intentional looking outside of these walls, outside of this community, and beginning to share and build life around and with the lost. Fourthly, uh, many of you have family relationships 
uh, complicated family dynamics that you know you're about to step into this Christmas. I want to challenge you to pray for open doors to share the gospel with family. I know you have hesitancy. I know a lot of you have anxiety about those moments with family. I want to challenge you to pray not just for the things you're anxious about, but to pray for an open door for the gospel this Christmas while you're together. In the midst of everything that's going on, for some reason, we always take the hearing, the seeing, and we short circuit it and forget to share at some point in time. I want to push on you. I want to challenge you to look for some relational moments this winter break as you lead up to Christmas and as you lead up to the new year to reach out to and begin to build some relationships, maybe in a direction that you don't normally do with the lost. Fourth and lastly, uh, I'll tell you this uh, as I think about it, um, your homework for this morning has nothing to do with reading a book and nothing to do with a training class. I'm going to highlight a training class for you in a minute as we wrap up. But for the next two weeks, there's no books that I want you to read and there's no training classes I want you to pursue or think about just yet. Because the greatest hang up for us is typically like we need to get more information about sharing or we need more training about sharing. What I want you to do over the next two weeks is I want you to move relationally towards the lost. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about uh, what questions or fears or concerns you have. I simply want you to do some relational work moving towards a group of people, a family, an individual that you know doesn't know the Lord. And just to extend love, extend compassion, and work on a relationship and begin to build some bridges outside of your normal comfortable spheres, all right? That's your homework. And then when you come back, as you begin to think about the spring, I want to highlight one of the last announcement that Guff had this morning, and that was simply perspectives. That perspectives will come in the spring, as will another kind of uh, small group called multiply groups that are great at teaching you how to share your faith. But we have a very training-heavy church. We have a very training-heavy leaning as to how we go about life. And before you get to the training opportunities, I want you to simply do some relational work over the next few weeks. Begin to build some relationships. Begin to move in that direction. And don't wait on the training. Don't feel like you have to read a book. You know how to build relationships. You know how to build friendships and do it. Not just in the church world, but even outside of it. That's your homework for this morning. That's your homework for the next few weeks. That's what I want to hear. Who are you praying for? Who are you building relationships with? Who has the Lord led you to share with? That's where we want you to head in the next few weeks. Lastly, if we wrap up this morning, I want you to see the last thing that happens after the shepherds share. Verse 17 again, or verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. They wondered. They were amazed at what the shepherds shared. I was thinking this week uh, of a couple things that kind of hit me. Uh, one of them was, uh, as a whole, I don't think there's another season of the year that people are as, as receptive to the gospel and what Jesus has done as Christmas. Uh, in fact, as, uh, one of our traditions, one of the things we do uh, as, as a family, or this is me with the kids, is we love to watch ABC's A Great Christmas Light Fight. It's like this competition of these houses that go crazy overboard on lights, okay? I mean, like crazy overboard. But even as they do it, so many of the families in the midst of their lighting have nativity sets. They have messages that Jesus saves. And it's amazing in the Christmas season, the openness and the receptivity that people have that you wouldn't have in any other opportunity. I was also noticing on my Facebook feed this week, and again, don't judge me. I don't know why I saw this or why I chose to click on it. But someone posted like a performance of NSYNC in 1995 in New York. And I don't know. I was like, okay. And so I started listening and... I know I've lost all respect. I understand. Uh, but they were singing a Christmas song in Rockefeller area in New York City on Christmas of God's love coming down. I was thinking in sync 20 years ago, as top of the charts as you could have in their singing of God's love coming down on Christmas. 
There's a receptivity our culture has at this time of year. Let us step into that and let us speak the words of the gospel. Let us move toward people relationally and not miss the opportunity in the midst of all of our traditions that we have as a family. Let us look outside of that as well. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for the inclusion of the shepherds at Christmas. Lord, it's no surprise that the Magi would be there, but seeing the shepherds there shocks us and stuns us at times. They were no network people. They were no one that was going to help get the message out necessarily that we would think. And yet, even as they share, even as they not only just hear and respond to it and then share it, people respond to them as well. They're such an unlikely casted character in our minds. And yet it shows your great value, your great dignity, and your great love for all within a society. And Lord, as we look at our city, as we look at our community, it is clear that there are so many that are marginalized. There are so many that don't have a voice. There are so many that may be disenfranchised. And I pray, Lord, that you'd allow us as a people of God to move towards those elements of our city with compassion, with kindness, with dignity that empowers and that serves and that moves towards them in love and in truth. And Father, I pray even for us as, as, as individuals or as students, singles or families, Lord, I pray for so many of us in the midst of the people that you've put in our lives, I pray, Lord, that you allow us to be intentional and courageous, looking for opportunities, praying for opportunities this Christmas season to speak of your gospel, to speak of your love and what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, who was great news for all people. And Lord, let us be the extenders of that message to all people, whether it's in our here of our domestic arena or even in the global arena. Lord, let us be a church that is as about equipping and training as we are about evangelism and outreach to our community and to our city. Lord, may you allow us to do that. May you create, put a person on our mind, may you create a situation or an opportunity that we would be sensitive to and that we'd move towards as you would be honored and as you would call us and as you lead us that we could speak the truth of the gospel, Lord, this winter. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit we pray, amen. You guys are dismissed. Y'all have a great week and we'll be praying for you guys.